morning. I invite you to turn to First Peter chapter three this morning. We want to have uh, again. We want to continue the kind of the practical side of evangelism. Answer some questions that uh, unbelievers might have, non-Christians might ask. And I, I mentioned last week that that uh, we're, we're working on developing a relationship. And what can happen is that we think that um, you know I missed my opportunity. I really should have said something there. And what tends to happen is is we get the same questions over and over again, or the same topics tend to come up over and over again. And so our job is to try to answer these questions. Um, think about yourself before you came to Christ. You had some questions about Christianity and its validity, and you needed to think through some things. Sometimes we can't just uh, make a decision right on the spot as to whether or not Christ is worthy to be served. And so... What we want to do over the next several classes is to just consider uh, what are some common questions that unbelievers might ask. And I was seeing if I have the book here. There's a book that I have downstairs called, um, I think it's Questions That Non-Christians Ask. It's uh, one that, that I got from Christianity Explored Materials. And it's, it's, I forget, it's like 25 questions. Most common questions that are asked by, by unbelievers. And if we tend to get the same questions, why not make sure that we're understanding them properly and then being able to answer them? That's what we want to focus on today. And I think this, the source or the foundation for that comes from this passage here. So let me read this passage and then we'll have a word of prayer and ask for God to help us as we look into this. First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God will, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Let's pray. Father, we ask for Your help as we seek to improve on being able to make a defense to everyone who asks for the hope that is in us. So we pray for help this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. So the purpose of this class, as you see there in your handout, is to begin to understand how we can answer questions that non-Christians ask in a way that is biblical, loving, edifying, and glorifying to God. So, why don't we begin by, uh, before we get to the questions that, that, um, that, uh, that I think are some of the most common, why don't you just help me and, and uh, think, what, what kind of questions do you get asked by non-Christians? What, are you, what do you find are the most common questions that your non-Christians ask they want answers to? Anyone? Okay. Anybody else ever get that one before? Okay. Anything else? Okay. We believe in science too. 
All right. Anything else that non-Christians ask? Okay. Okay. Mike? All right. That probably could fall under this one here, under suffering. Yeah. Lots of different variations of that. Every time you have a catastrophe in the world, um, you know, 9-11, the tsunamis, things like that, people are asking questions. Well, why, why would a good God allow that? that? That doesn't make sense. Why would you serve a God like that? Okay, good. All right, well, we'll, we'll try to answer these and several more. In fact, um, a few of these are, are part of the questions that we want to answer today. Um, I mean, how, how do we tend to respond to these types of questions? When, when the unbelievers ask these difficult questions that, in some cases, we've got to admit, that first one especially, man, how do you answer something like that? Do you find that your answers are helpful? And do you find that, that they're not just helpful in the way that you are explaining them, but are they helpful to the person who's wanting to know the answer? And so what we want to do is, is try to prepare ourselves better to answer these questions for friends and family who will invariably ask because you know they you you may give them the gospel you may tell them about Jesus all the great benefits of coming to him and the demand to come to him and they may agree that that's important but they may be hung up on some of these questions and so what we want to do is try to um, do what First Peter three fifteen says the middle of the verse says always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you who everyone everyone who asks you what about science? What about these other religions that are out there? What about the suffering that's going on in the world? What about the fact that I, in relationship to other people, am not as sinful or not sinful at all, right? And so we want to, to be able to give them an answer for the hope that we have within us. And that's part of our responsibility as people who are called for the purpose of evangelism. So there are about a dozen recurring questions which non-Christians ask. And uh, so we want to start to get a handle on these. We're going to look at five of them today. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is get people to the main question that is at stake. And this is what we've got to keep in mind. What will you do with Christ? Okay, that's the main question. Christ is here. He's been presented to you. You have a responsibility to respond to Him. All of these questions may be guarding you or obstacles to you getting to Christ. But the main question here that we're trying to help them, we're trying to remove these obstacles from them, not by telling lies or by you know, uh, changing the facts or, or by manipulating things, but, but actually by answering them carefully, removing some of these smoke screens that are hiding uh, these people from the real question. That's often what these are, by the way. You know, they, they know that they need to respond to Christ, but they don't want to. They, don't, they know that submitting to Christ is going to mean they have to give something up. They have to turn away from their sin. And so, then they come up with smoke screens of, well, what about this? What about this? What, you know, maybe they've just, they're just parroting something they've heard from other people, and they don't even, they're not really concerned. And part of that is we need to be able to discern whether they're genuinely asking these questions or whether they're just um, stonewalling us in order not to get to the main issue. Um, so if we're going to, to understand them, we need to think in terms 
of of helping them in a way that that will be beneficial for them. That that um, we need to think about the content of our answers, and we also want to practice these answers. Okay, this is part of the reason why we're going through some of these classes here towards the end of the series. We want to practice some of these answers so that when someone asks them, we we uh, we may need some time to just reflect on it and say, listen, I'll, I'll, uh, that's a good question. I need to come back and, and answer that for you. But actually do come back and, and have an answer for them. But but perhaps it's something that now you're thinking about. And so... Um, and so... Uh, so you can give an answer. So we want to go through this exercise uh, so we can hear ourselves talk and be prepared and equipped and motivated to give the answer. But before we dive into these questions, um, let me just take a few minutes and highlight some principles that we need to use for apologetics. Okay, um, I want to look at this briefly. Okay, first, let's just think about what is apologetics. Anyone have an idea of what apologetics is? Okay, beliefs. Okay, good. Look at verse 15 again. This is actually where the word comes from. Always, middle of the verse, always being ready to, and then that phrase, make a defense, comes from one Greek word, which is apologia, which is the word from which we get apologetic. So always be ready to be apologetic. Not like, I'm really sorry. That, not that time. That's, not a, that's why on the handout it says not apologies. Okay. But apologetics is a branch of theology concerned with the defense of the gospel. We are saying, listen, this gospel is true. And you have all these different things that may serve as smoke screens. They actually may serve as attacks on the gospel. And we're standing there saying, listen, this gospel is true. And here's why. And so we're defending our faith. We're defending the gospel that we love. <clears throat> However, apologetics can be dangerous. For one, uh, when we give people the right answers, that won't guarantee that they'll turn to Christ, right? If they listed all 12 of these questions that we're going to think through and we gave them all the 12 best answers possible and worded them in the best way possible, you know, we can't guarantee that they're going to come to Christ. Okay, secondly, there are many committed Christians who are insecure because they don't have a comprehensive answer. And here's sometimes the danger of of um, trying to think through apologetics is like, well, if they ask me this question, I don't have the full answer. I don't have the comprehensive a- answer. And so I, I can't help them. You know, I, I'm, I'm inadequate for the task. And what I want you to recognize is that, first of all, we'll never be able to fully give a comprehensive answer, right? No matter how skilled we are. Um, sometimes we're just going to have to say, you know, that's a tough thing to think through. And... Uh, but we, we do have some kind of an answer and something that points them back to the Scriptures. And then finally, apologetics is dangerous because it can work, work to mask the real issues that the first person is facing. This is what I was talking about early, earlier, the smoke screens. Okay? That these questions may serve as a way to, to um, distract you as the defender from the real issue. And we're going to turn to John chapter 4 because we'll see this again. A passage we looked at earlier, but John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Isn't that not what she's doing there? She's kind of setting up these smoke screens. Not, not antagonistic. Not like, oh, I hate this gospel. I'm not going to accept it. It is. She has some questions, 
but she was distracting Jesus from trying to distract Jesus from the real um, the real issue, which was she needed to respond to Christ. So that doesn't mean that okay, it's because of these dangers of apologetics that we get rid of them. Instead, apologetics is something that we must do because First Peter three says you always need to be ready as a Christian. You need to be ready to make a defense for the hope that you have within you. So do you have hope within you about the gospel and what it will do to a person, what it has done for you, what it will do for you. If you have that hope, then you need to be ready to make a defense. And we also need to recognize that just because we have these answers doesn't mean they're going to become Christians, but that's okay. Our our job, remember, is not fruitfulness, but what? Faithfulness to the Scripture. Okay, We we have a view toward fruitfulness. We We certainly desire to see them come to Christ and like Paul, he's ready to give his whole life for the Jews to come to Christ. But our main goal is faithfulness. Um, leave the, the response by them to God. And um, then thirdly, the most important reason why we need to keep apologetics and be serious about it is because Jesus was serious about apologetics. He was ready to give a defense for the hope that he had within him. And the key to avoiding these dangers is to know how to use them. And Jesus is a good example for us. Would someone read verses 19 through 26? John 4, 19 to 26, please. That's good. Right there. Thank you very much. All right, so let me ask uh, a little bit of uh, a difficult question, perhaps. What do you think is the underlying question here that she's trying to see answered? What's the under what's the what's the main question that she wants to see answered? Okay, good. It's about worship. Okay, it's a question of worship. And so now we can start to um we can we can start to hone in on some of our apologetic skills and be able to to think properly about how Jesus responded to her with her question. It's going to be similar to the questions that we receive. We may even get the very question that she asks. But we're going to get questions about various things and Jesus responds in a certain way. First, Jesus considers the context. He was sensitive to her as a person. His response to her has questions that go right to the heart. He takes her questions seriously because he takes her seriously. And I think we need to do the same. We need to, to think about the person in their context. They, they, need to, um, they need to be heart-filled responses and recognize that we're not just talking to machines or something like that. 
Uh, in fact, the way that First Peter says it uh, in chapter three, verse fifteen, is that we should do this with gentleness and fear. Okay, uh, uh, the idea is that we we don't just cram the answers down their throat, right? They're like, why do people suffer? How dare you ask that question? God is the God of the universe, and He's the one who makes the choice. And we we may have all the right answers, and we just force it down their throat, and that's not with gentleness, and that's not the way Jesus responded to the woman at the well. So understand the context. Ask yourself before you answer the question, uh, what is the what is the um, mentality of the person? Okay, as best as you can tell, uh, based on the way that they're asking the question, are they angry? Do they feel threatened? Like, wait a second, the religion that I've believed all my life you're telling me is wrong? Um... Are they trying to get off the hook? Are they genuinely seeking after God? Okay, obviously, understand, no one seeks after God, but but there is a sense in which the, the Holy Spirit draws us, and at that point, we're we're seeking after God. So, are, is the Holy Spirit drawing them? Um, if, if this question is answered, will it knock down a true hindrance to faith? Okay, the person may just want to change the subject, or they may want a real answer. So, see if you can discern that from them and obviously Jesus is able to do that he's able to determine the context and he spoke to her as a real person serious about her question so context secondly content he considers the content of each question Jesus makes sure that she sees what's important about their discussion and what is most important about their discussion it's him okay the messiah he is the most important that's what he's trying to ultimately draw her to. Remember what I said, that the most important question, all these questions need to lead them to the most important question, which is, what are you going to do with Christ? And that's what she needed to see. That's the content part of it. So, sometimes what can happen is some of these smoke screens, we can end up spending a lot of time doing a huge defense on them and, and then we never get to the main thing, which is Christ. Okay, so we need to make sure we're we're driving to that that main point of the gospel. Because as I said last week, you haven't given the gospel until you've talked about Jesus. Okay. As their uh, as the one who provides atonement for sin and the one who now lives for us. Okay, that that's the gospel. Um, so think about their question and the answer in terms of um, a biblical or gospel worldview. Um, then thirdly, keep your eye on the goal. And this is what Jesus did. It's very similar to the previous one. But in verse 21, he, He's saying there's a bigger issue here at stake than the place of worship. Okay, He's not saying that what you're saying is right, Samaritan place, you know, Gerizim, that's okay, you can worship there. He's not saying that's okay. In fact, what He is saying is you're missing the whole point of worship. Worship is not primarily about a place, is it? What is it about? It's about a person, right? It's about a person that we worship. It is God whom we worship. And so that's what she needed to see. So they need to see that that there is something bigger going on than abortion. That there is something bigger going on than the national elections. Okay, there is something bigger thing going on than you know the hypocrisy that they see in these people who call themselves Christian. They need to see there's something bigger, and that is Jesus, the, the person of worship, or, or we could say uh, God, uh, God the Father. So as we go through these 
questions and answers. Let's try to answer these um, with those principles in mind. Context, content, and goal. And what we're going to focus on actually when we go through these five questions is the content and goal. Because obviously we don't know how the person, based on the question that's going to be asked to us, you're going to have various types of context. One person may do it out of anger. One person may be threatened. One person may be just trying to blow smoke. Okay, but but um, but those are going to be different. So what we're going to focus on more on the content and goal. So when you give an answer, I'm going to ask the questions. You're going to help me think through. Uh, you want to you want to think through this pattern that Max Stiles puts in his book, uh, and it is a threefold pattern: understand, affirm, and reveal Jesus. Okay, the first part is understand where the question is coming from. And this may involve some study on your part. It does not necessarily require that you say something to the person. You may simply just know that their background is, you know, Catholicism or Islam. Uh, so understand where they're coming from. Secondly, affirm a good question. So if they have a good question, they say, you know, I don't understand why God would allow abortion. Why God would allow babies to die? Well, affirm that with them. Yes, that is a good question. You know, I've I've wrestled that with that question too. And and um, don't dismiss everything that they say. Well, you don't believe in God, so you you don't understand. But but uh, affirm that to them. And then, as you give a real answer, obviously this is the main point: reveal Jesus. Don't get sidetracked from what's important. Okay. So understand. This is what I'm going to be looking for when I ask you. Make sure you understand the question that's being asked. Affirm and reveal Jesus. Okay, number one. Any questions so far? Number one. Is the Bible trustworthy? Anybody ever been asked that question? Or have anybody ever been challenged on that? Well, yeah, you believe that, but here's what I believe. Okay, here's the question. Is the Bible trustworthy? What do we want to say there? How do we want to respond? How do we Let's start with the first part. How do we want to show that we understand the question as it's being asked? Okay, this is not how you're going to respond to them. This is what you're thinking about them. Do you understand what they're actually asking? Okay. Okay. So why might they be? Maybe let me ask it this way. Why might they be asking the question? Is the Bible trustworthy? Okay. Okay. So they've heard it misrepresented. Um, they, they've seen some potential flaws in it because it's written by humans, right? Okay. It, it sounds uh, it sounds like a, a sort of enlightenment type answer. Like the real way that we understand something is by reasoning. This is the science question, right? The real way we understand it is by we taking something and we observe it and then we, we make choices based on that. And so we can't believe something that's that's this. Okay, that's that's kind of the understanding. This is where we're trying to get into their mind and see what they're really asking. Is the Bible trustworthy? Secondly, how do we affirm 
How, how can we affirm them in this question? Okay, is there anything to affirm about this question? What can we affirm about this question that they're asking? I don't think the Bible's trustworthy. How about this? Listen, we don't want to base our beliefs on something that's false, false either. Right? That's a good affirmation for them. Like, yes, you're thinking in the right way. You don't want to believe in something that's not true. So let's talk about that. Okay, so now they recognize that you understand them. And you don't necessarily have to say, okay, you're thinking in light, like an enlightener, an enlightened, enlightened person. Okay, uh, but you do have to say, I, I do think it would be helpful for you to affirm them. You don't have to say this, but I think it would be helpful to affirm. Listen, you know, I, I don't want to believe in a religion that's false. I want to believe in something that's true. So let's talk about that. How can we point them to Jesus with this question? Is the Bible trustworthy? Yes, Sandra. Okay. Okay. So we can take them to 2 Timothy 3 and say all Scripture is inspired by God and they say, well, that's circular reasoning. You know, God says He wrote it, and so you believe it. How do we how do we respond to this question? Is the Bible trustworthy? Okay, written by over forty authors, right? Over fifteen hundred years in time. It's not a it's not a collusion where a bunch of people are just deciding all at one time. Hey, let's put something like the Joseph Smith diaries, also known as the Mormon Bible. Okay. Um, where he just kind of comes up with it, supposedly from this angel who reveals it to him, this gold tablet or whatever. Um, no, this is 1,500 years of time. It's, it's, it's attested by the various authors and by, you know, don't you think people would have rejected it and, and, and dismissed it by now? Ken? Okay. Right. <clears throat> All right. Now let's go back to Paul's original follow-up question. Again, I, I've mentioned before in evangelism, one of the most helpful things you can do is respond with another question. Okay. Not to dismiss their question, but to get them to think where they're actually coming from. And his follow-up question was. Have you read it? Why don't you ask them, hey, can we take six weeks, just you and me, hey, this is not, we're going to read the Bible for the rest of our lives, but let's take six weeks and read through the Gospel of Mark or the read through the Gospel of, of Matthew or something. And, and then let's talk about it. Okay, You say you don't believe it, but, but that's the point is you've never even read it. So how can you just quickly dismiss it, Paul? talk about the authors how many how many early authors you know were writing based on Julius Caesar okay and then you can show that listen the bible has manuscripts back to the you know second century yep right thousands right so 
Exactly. That's a great point. So there is internal consistency. There is historical consistency, like Ken mentioned. There's archaeological evidence. All suggest that the Bible is one of the most reliable. But here's the, here's the thing. We know it to be true because God tells us that it's true. And, and the only way that we can know that is if the Spirit reveals that. That may be a little bit deep for an unbeliever, but uh, especially initially. But, but we, we know that because uh, we've read it for ourselves. And we've seen the consistency in it. Okay, there's a lot more we can say about that. But let's get to the next question: Is Christ the only way to God? Okay, this is kind of similar to what um, Eric was suggesting. You know, I, I believe in science. I believe in a different way to God. Or maybe they don't even say they believe in God, but but certainly you've heard this question before: Is Christ the only way to God? Certainly, there have there has to be many ways to God. So. What do we want to say there? How do we want to show that we understand their question? Okay. All right. Any other thoughts? Okay. Let's let's move on to the next one. This might help clarify it. How can we affirm them in their question? What what is affirming? What is um, what's the right thing that they're looking at? Okay, and and then what Jonathan's saying here that, that we we believe that there are many ways. There are sincere people when it comes to all these different kinds of religions. We've seen them. We know them. Uh, we've been one of them, right? When it comes to the various religions, so we can affirm them in that. We don't want to believe the wrong thing. Um, and so then how do we point them to Christ with this question? Is Christ the only way to God? What is that? One God. Okay. Okay, so there is only one way. Is there anything else? Okay. Good. So First Timothy two five, John fourteen six. Um anything else? Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So the Bible is clear that there is only one way. So we can ask them, you know, what do you think about Jesus' claims about how do we get to God? Um, the, the religion of the world, the religions of the world say, you know, you need to do things. You need to do, do, do. You need to do all these things in order to be accepted. But Christ says, it's done, right? It's finished. And um, that's what makes Christianity so special. It's the only way to God. Our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is removed. The fear of death is destroyed. Our faith is founded on a personal God. And uh, C.S. Lewis has this famous uh, quotation. He was a 20th century author, as you know. And uh, it's in response to the question, who do you think Jesus is? And he argues that there are only three possibilities for how you can respond to that question. And they are what? You know what they are? They all start with L. Liar, a lunatic, or the right one starts with L. Lord. Okay. This is C.S. Lewis. Either a li- You either think Jesus is a liar, you think he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. He's how he says it in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said 
would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Okay, if 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 a man said the things like Jesus said them, like if you only you can only come to the Father through me, then he's either the devil, or he's a lunatic, or he's this third option. You must make the choice. He goes on to say, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Okay, Christ is Lord. They need to recognize that. Uh, they're not going to be convinced by C.S. Lewis's quote. They're going to be convinced by the teaching of Scripture. But that is an excellent way to, 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 to recognize where people are coming from. Number three, why does a good God allow suffering and evil? <clears throat> so, how can we show that we understand their question? What, what do you think is at the heart of their question? When they ask the question, why does a good God allow suffering and evil? Okay, they've experienced pain or they've seen pain. <clears throat> this is one of, if not, uh, if not the main proof, it is the only proof for atheism. They cannot believe in God because they see suffering. That's one of their main proofs that they... So, so understand that recognize that people are often going to bring this one up and uh, we affirm them by saying what? How, how can we affirm them in their question? Right. This is, the, this is a question that I struggle with too. I've thought about this very question. How can a good God allow suffering and evil into the world? And um, ultimately recognize that our answers are will fall short. We can't just okay, here's here's my paper on evil, you know, this this is the definitive response to your question. So, how do we take this question and then point them to Christ? Because this is actually a really good question that we can use if, when they're asking these kinds of questions, by the way, that's a good thing. Okay, that this is this perhaps is the window or the door for us to get them to to see the reality of Christ. So, how can we point them to Christ with this kind of a question? Yeah. Okay. Look at the cross. How can a good God allow a good Savior, a perfect Savior, to suffer? He's not a God who who allows suffering and just kind of sits back and doesn't do anything about it. He's the kind of God that comes down to us, condescends, and actually suffers with us. He's experienced it with us. That's exactly right. You go right to the cross. God has not chosen... Uh, to wipe out all evil. Instead, He's chosen to identify with us in our experience of it. And um, ultimately, Jesus offers more hope in dealing with the problem of evil than any secular system of philosophy. Okay, The Bible says much about suffering. There's lots of things we could point the people to. Um, obviously, suffering is a result of rebellion, as we're going to see tonight in Luke uh, 12. Uh, 13. 
uh, that you know why, why did why did these Gentiles get killed while they were in the midst of sacrificing? Uh, while they're in the midst of offering sacrifices at the temple. Why did these Gentiles get killed by Pilate? You know Jesus' response? I mentioned this last week. Unless you all repent, you will likewise perish. And you remember the Tower of Siloam where the 18 people died? Okay. Who, who sinned? Those 18 people or their parents? Right? Or John 9? Who sinned? And Jesus' response is, Listen, you know why they're suffering? It helps points us to point us to a greater judgment that's coming. Okay? It's not that God always allows suffering as a one to one correspondent um, connection between that person and their sin, right? The blind man that Jesus healed and the Pharisees are saying, Who sinned? This man or his parents? Jesus is saying, No, you don't understand. Yes, suffering is a result of evil, but not directly always. We all suffer because of other people's evil, don't we? Okay? And sometimes it's just part of living in a sin-cursed world. People might not like to hear that, but the main point is that God is bringing about a greater suffering at the judgment that you need to be prepared for. And here's the great hope of the Gospel. What is it? Okay? We can be saved. We can be rescued from that judgment. And that's how we, we kind of take their question, understand it, affirm it, and then, hey, look at Jesus. It actually helps uh, highlight why God brings about the suffering, that God actually does it in order to point people to Christ. And, and uh, someone that go, has gone through something, especially recently, can find that very hard to understand. But just give them time. Give the Holy Spirit time to work and pray for them and see what God will do. Alright, number four. This is kind of closely connected, but does God really send people to hell? Ever heard that one before? Uh, does God really send people to hell? How do we know that... How can we show that we understand their question? Okay, that's <laughs> that's the uh, affirmation. Ken. Okay, it's um, you know understand that it is very unpopular to believe in hell. There's just actually a survey that just came out by Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's group there, and I think it was like 20% of people in America actually believe that there is a hell. Um, and not too much higher believe in a heaven. Um, people tend to believe more in heaven than they do in hell because they want to believe in, in something good, but they can't imagine that there would be a hell unless it's for like this small group of really bad people, like we just saying about the Third Reich and, and those types of people. Okay, um, So recognize that some people have a hard time. Here's how you understand where they're coming from. They might have had someone in their life that was a complete, um, I was going to say reprobate, but maybe that's not the best way to say it. Someone who was was completely in rejection of God, and they knew it. They knew it. Even as an unbeliever, they knew. They're, you know, with their life, 
if if there was a hell, then then that family member or friend's going there. Okay, so they might be thinking of it on an emotional level. I can't imagine that that person would go there because I love them too much. So we affirm them by saying, "Listen, we struggle with that too." And it goes back to the we believe that there is a good God, and and we we struggle with that too because we think of people who, for example, haven't heard. We don't have to get into that with unbelievers, but. Um, but but it is a difficult question. So how do we point them to Christ with this kind of a question? Right. Yeah. And it's actually it's actually better to know that there is a hell before it's time for judgment, right? that God actually has revealed that to you and then He's provided a way of escape. Okay, so this is a good thing that that God... And, and then I would again invite them to read the Scriptures with you. Say, listen, here, here's a... Any Gospel that you read through is going to talk about hell. And it will be a great opportunity for them to think about it in terms of how Jesus talked about it. And amazingly, Jesus talks about it a lot. Okay, he doesn't skirt around the issue and kind of, well, I, I don't really want to offend them. He, he's very blatant about it. It's better to have your arm cut off uh, and and make it into the kingdom than it is to, to have all of your limbs attached and all your eyes in place, all two of them, then, and be in hell, obviously. Okay, so we can trust God that He is just, that He is a good God, that He is holy, and that's why He has to punish sin. And... Um, and yet there's hope that, that God will not exact judgment on a person who has turned in faith to Christ. And that's what God calls you to do and offers to you today. Number five, why won't my good efforts get me to heaven? You ever heard that one before? Why won't my good efforts get... To, I mean, I try to do my best and I look at myself in comparison to... How can we understand them properly? How can we show that we understand them properly? Okay. Right. I mean, part of it is we don't see that we need a Savior. Hey, yeah, you need to be saved. You need to be born again. Born again from what? I mean, am I dead? I'm, I'm alive here. And I'm doing the best that I can. And I don't see my sin. This is back to, uh, was it Ken that you brought up the one about, I don't see that myself as a sinner. Okay, so my good effort should be good enough to get me to heaven. And um, and we can affirm them by saying, listen, we like Eric said, we look at our own lives and compare them to others. And many of us don't look that bad in comparison to some of the worst criminals out there. But here's the question for them. Okay, again, follow up with the question. Make sure you understand what they're asking and then follow up with the question, which is, what is good? Okay, what do you mean by good? How good is good enough? There's a little booklet um, put out uh, by one of the Stanley boys. can't remember who. Um, don't promote everything that they put out, Andy. Um, don't promote everything I put out. Um, but that book is excellent in answering that question. How good is good enough? So how do we point them to Christ? Um, you know, recognize that God is after friends, not good rebels. Okay? They, they need to recognize that they're actually a rebel 
to God. The way that Ephesians talks about it is they are dead in trespass and they are enemies of God. Okay, We are en- at enmity, at war with God. God's not looking for good enemies. He's looking for friends. People who are going to be on His side. So, so that means we can't earn salvation by our works. God is infinitely holy and just and, um, and uh, ultimately we should recognize that... that um, that just because they believe something to be true doesn't make it necessarily true, right? Because otherwise, you got people who flew into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon who were seen as sincere people who thought themselves good enough to enter into the heaven that they believed. And we all would agree, including non-Christians, and they all would agree as well, that that is not good, Right? So, so how do we make the standard? There's a lot we can say about that. I just reminded this last week. Um, we met with Mike Jewell for dinner, Paul and, and I and our families. And um, I went back and watched one of our old videos from that mission strip. And we had a, a clip on there of this guy that we had met in a bus station. And he just couldn't, he just couldn't consider the idea. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't agree that, that, um, that God would be the only way. You know, and um, so it, it's not just what the person says and what they've always thought and what, how they've been brought up. It is what does the scripture say and what does it point us to? Um, what is the source of our motivation and cherished beliefs? Sincerity does not equal truth, and no matter how sincere they are about being good, it doesn't matter in terms of God. Okay, ultimately, we need to be good on His terms and the goodness that we accomplish doesn't contribute to our salvation. All right. A lot there, but hopefully that was helpful. Just kind of help us to point people to Jesus and recognize that when they're asking those questions, sometimes they're very seriously searching. We should take uh, take them seriously and be always ready to make uh, defense for the hope that we have in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time for wrestling through some of these questions that even we have wrestled through and perhaps even before our salvation. And yet, uh, we don't have all the answers, but we do um, have the main answer, which is that Christ is the way and He is the only way. And we pray that we would be clear about that and convinced of it fully and that we would be ready to tell others about it as well. In Jesus' name, amen.